Welcome to Rex's Bible Minute, a weekly video where we talk about Jesus, Christianity, and anything along those lines. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 1. We are starting our new journey into the story of the Exodus. Um, If you have clicked on this video or clicked on the podcast link, you probably already know that. Uh, But I'm really excited to get into this. Uh, We are, are starting into the Exodus this year because here at the Church, a lot of our teaching is going to be Old Testament focused, simply because the New Testament is really built on the Old Testament. And one of the most important, I would make the argument that the most important part of the Old Testament for understanding the new is the Exodus story. It's the story of how God worked on behalf of his people to lead them out of slavery into freedom. If you read the New Testament, that kind of language is everywhere in this. So uh, a study on the Exodus story is is one that will help you understand uh, Paul's writings and and Luke's writings and all the Gospels, the whole New Testament. This language is everywhere within it. And so the whole point that we are going to work towards this entire time, right? This is, if you walk away now with this, you've got everything. This is the whole point, is that God is sovereign, all-powerful, undisputed ruler of the universe who loves his people and acts terrifyingly powerfully on their behalf. That's the whole point. You walk away with nothing else, walk away with that. That God is the sovereign, all-powerful, undisputed ruler of the universe who loves his people and has acted and will act and is currently acting powerfully and terrifyingly on behalf of his people. That's the story of the Old Testament, and that's the story of the Exodus, and that's the story of the cross. So uh, hopefully that's exciting to you, that's intriguing to you, that's something that you'll, be, you, you, you'll feel can, can help, help you as you grow in your journey as a, as a Christian or wherever you are in your spiritual walk. Um, so that being said, uh, we're, there's some things we need to do before we start studying. As, as always, you know, if you've been around here for a while, you know that, that context matters, that, that it's important that we actually go through and, and place ourselves as close as we can to the author's original meaning. Because God inspired the, the Bible. He inspired it. And humans wrote it down, but the humans had an intended audience that they meant to write to. And they, that, that means they had things and references that they would expect the readers to know. And, and so it's important that we do our best to try to place ourselves back into that world. And so we're going to do that today basically by looking at three big things, three big topics. We're going to look at literary considerations. We're going to look at the historical context. And we're going to look at Israel's history. Now, literary considerations is a really, like, like you hear that and you answer, you're like, oh, that sounds so boring. I feel like I'm in English class again or something like that. Um, but literary considerations are basically, we need to make sure that we're understanding what we're reading. You know, when you read a text message, you approach that differently than when you read a book. And when you read a scholarly book, you know, or a reference book or a commentary on the Bible, you read that differently than you read, you know, Harry Potter. You know, you, what we're reading and understanding what it is it matters a lot because uh, it can change a lot. Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? Is it historical fiction? Is it is it true? Is it false? Is it documenting? Is it is it a narrative? Is it whatever? What is it? Is it poetry? Like all these questions, we, we need to be able to answer relatively confidently. And so here's the way I want you to think about the Exodus story and Exodus in general, the whole book. We're only going to be going to chapter 15, by the way. Um, but think about it like this. Think about it like it's a movie based on a true story. 
you know it's it is a true story it's not fiction you know it's not a a myth or a legend created to communicate a truth you know it's not like pandora's box where the girl opens the box and all the bad things came out because she couldn't have self-control and curiosity can lead to dangerous things you know there's more lessons that are in that story or the boy who cried wolf who, who had to learn the lesson the hard way that you can't abuse people you can't abuse their trust you can't abuse the systems that that you have to be honest and authentic and real like those are those are stories that were created uh, to communicate a, a, a truth, a lesson. Yes, the story of the Exodus definitely communicates a massive lesson. We've already mentioned it, but it's not that. It's not just a myth or a legend to communicate that, um, but it's also not a historical documentation, right? It wasn't written down uh, with the expectation that every single detail is recorded, everything is dated, everything is organized, everything is objective. No, there's definitely subjective opinions, subjective points of view, subjective uh, emphasis, emphases in this story, it's not meant to be a textbook or a scientific book. It's meant to be a story that communicates the meaning, but also, in a sense, documents the people of history, people of Israel's origin. You know, some examples in the Bible of, of true documentation would be like First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles. That's why those books are can be a little monotonous to read because they're just this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. It, it, they still have biases. Don't don't be disillusioned there and think that they're objective. They're not. But they were written down with the, the point of documenting, not to tell a story. The other thing I want you to understand about Exodus before we get into it is it is it's a Marvel movie, not a DC movie, right? DC movies like Batman and Superman and Green Lantern and Aquaman, they're really written and created to be standalone films, right? You can watch any of the Batman movies and pretty much know exactly what's going on because every character is introduced in it, every character is explained in it. You don't have to have seen any of the other movies. Marvel movies, on the other hand, are uh, they're a little bit more sequential. You can't really watch the Avengers without having seen Iron Man and Thor and Captain America because all of a sudden those characters are just in the movie with no real explanation of who they are or where they came from. That's the way Exodus works. It is written with the expectation that you have read Genesis at least, that you know who Abraham is, that you know who Isaac is, that you know about the covenants God made with Abraham, that you know about the promises of, of escape from freedom, that you know about the prophecy of slavery, that you know all these things are, are factored in, that you know the 12 sons, you know where all these names came from. You know that God has, has a plan that he's moving along to create a people amongst the earth. All that starts in Genesis. So it's expected, as we go through this, that you have a working knowledge of Genesis. Genesis being one of the most covered uh, parts of the Bible. I'm, I'm going to expect that, but if not, as we get into this, maybe this week, go back and read uh, the accounts of Genesis, starting with Abraham all the way to the end of it through Joseph, because um, that's really where the story of Exodus picks up. All right. So it's it's more like a movie based on fact. It's a story that's told to explain history as well as communicate a lesson. It's not all one or all the other. It's 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 a movie based on true events. Uh, there are definitely subjective uh, choices made as to far as far as what was written down and what was excluded. All right. Uh, the next thing, as far as literary stuff goes, is the things we always talk about. It the three A's: author, agenda, audience. Who wrote it? Why did they write it? Who are they writing to? Um, so who wrote it? Traditionally, it's Moses. That, that's typically who we attribute uh, this to. Part of that is because there are sections in the book of Exodus itself that claim to be written by Moses. There are other parts of the Old Testament, like Joshua, that talk about 
the law of Moses about Moses writing this down, and there's parts of the New Testament that ascribe parts of Exodus to being written by Moses. So there's a lot of evidence within it, and then as well as there's just not a good theory otherwise unless you go down the the liberal, and I'm talking about theologically liberal, not you know conservative, Democrat, Republican, not that. With theologically liberal theologians, um, they 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 have a proponent that there are four uh, sources that the the whole Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are based on, and it's it's really kind of easy to poke holes into. But there are smart people who go down that rabbit hole. But basically, there's no viable alternative to Moses being the author for if for most of, if not all of. Uh, the story of Exodus. So uh, we we think it's him. Um, typically, the dating is around 1500s to 1300s BC. We're going to talk about that more in a minute because it's it's also one of those real big question marks kind of things. I mean, we're dealing with a document that is probably around 3500 years old. There's a little bit that happened between now and then. You know that that means this was written closer to the time of as close to the time of Alexander the Great as we are to the Vikings, right? That, that, that we're both about equal distance away from Julius Caesar. That's that's essentially uh, the the time we're talking about. It's a massive, massive time gap. So it's it's it, we can't expect to be super um, precise in our our details here as to who wrote it, when they wrote it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the other thing, the next thing is, why did they write it? So who wrote it? We're pretty sure it was Moses. Uh, agenda, why did they write it? And again, that goes back to what we kind of opened with, to communicate that God is the sovereign, all-powerful, undisputed ruler of the universe who loves his people and is willing and has acted on on their behalf in terrifying and powerful ways. That's, that's, that's the agenda here. He's writing that so that that story is communicated to every new generation of the people of Israel and ultimately the people of God. So to us too, it's, it's a viable message to look back and see how God has acted. And then we see it in a whole new light when we, we learn the story of Jesus and how God acted in a different way, but in a sense, the same way. So that's that's who he wrote to as well. That's the, every new generation of Israel and and the, the people of God in general. So Moses wrote it to communicate that truth and that story to to us, to the people of God. As far as an outline goes, you know, don't don't worry about remembering every little detail with this. But uh, we're only doing the first fifteen chapters, so we're really only going to focus on that. But Exodus breaks down into three parts. Most people kind of agree on. You have the historical story, the historical narrative, chapters one through eighteen. Uh, then you have the legal part. You know, when Moses gets the law and starts reading a bunch of rules, that's chapters nineteen through twenty-four. Uh, and then you have a worship section, uh, chapter twenty-five through forty, where it talks about worshiping God and how to worship God. We're only going to be to chapter fifteen, so we really aren't going to break it down any further up to. Uh, chapter 18, because that's kind of where uh, we're going to be. So the chapter 1 is, is about the oppression of Israel, Israel's enslavement. Uh, chapters 2 through 6 is about Moses and where he came from and his calling and how God grabbed him and started working through him. Uh, chapters 7 through 11 are about the 10 plagues, about God's powerful and terrifying acting on behalf of the people of Israel. And then chapters 12 through 18 are about the actual exodus itself and the journey to Mount Sinai. So don't worry about all that. We're going to talk about that outline and where we're at in the story every single week like we did with Revelation. So just be aware that, that that's kind of the breakdown of it. Um, the next thing, so that was our literary considerations. The next thing we need to look at is the historical context. What was the world like? Like what factors would, would play into Moses writing this down that he would expect us to know that maybe aren't obvious to us now to you know, 3,500 years later? Um, again, I need to point out that exacts aren't possible. I mean, think about what has happened in human history since this was written, if, if the date's roughly 3,500 years ago. 
You had the Bronze Age collapse, where entire civilizations went away, where powerful empires just disappeared, where people went backwards and stopped living in towns and cities and went back to nomadic existences, where where just history and human evolution went way backwards, right? And then after that, you had eventually the Dark Ages, the literal Dark Ages, where we lost information. I mean, between then and now, we've definitely lost information, uh, with things all the way down to the language itself. If you look at statues and paintings of Moses from sometime after the Middle Ages, uh, you'll notice something funny about him. He has horns. I've got a, a, an image of, of Michelangelo's Moses. And this comes down to the fact that when a guy named Jerome was translating uh, the, the story of Exodus, he got to the part where Moses came back down off the mountain the second time, and it says that he emanated rays of light or horns of light from his face. And if you remember the story, you know that God passed in front of Moses and his face glowed after. And he had to wear a covering to hide the, the glory of, uh, on his face. It was the glory of God that just kind of got stuck to him. I don't know how else to say it. But the word for emanating rays of light, horns of light, it, it, it got lost. And they knew the word for horns was K Q E R E N, And the word there was Q-A-R-A-N. had the same root. So they assumed it was horns. So, I mean, something as simple as, like, the difference between the word glow and horns, like, they lost that. So just keep that in mind as we go through these things. Don't get caught up in the historical details and trying to be super precise and make this a scientific textbook. It's not that at all. It is a, a historical narrative that, that communicates the story as well as documents the history. Um so all that being said, when was it written? What's the evidence for it? Uh, there's been massive arguments about this. There are people who have doctorates uh, who wrote their PhDs or their theses for their PhDs uh, on this topic. Like it's that debatable. It's there. So there's not going to be a clear cut answer. Um, really, everybody agrees that it was probably during what's called the New Kingdom in Egypt's history. Um, basically, Egypt had an old kingdom, had a middle kingdom, had a new kingdom. That's all you really need to worry about with that. But this New Kingdom period lasted between the 1500s and the 1300s BC. And so the two main points that they point to on the map uh, on, on the history are the 1500s and the 1300s. So the New Kingdom lasted from 1550 to 1200 BC, depending on who you ask. And the two dates that they point to are 1500s and 1300s. The evidence for the 1500s comes from uh, the Bible itself. Actually, both come from the Bible itself. But uh, 1 Kings 6.1 mentions that it was 400 years since the Israelites came out of Egypt, and then it dates it as the fourth year of Solomon's reign. Well, we're pretty sure we know when Solomon reigned, so that would put it in the 1500s. And then Judges 11.26 says when Israel lived in Heshbon, and it talks about 300 years. Again, we're able to kind of put the pieces together, and that, that would, you know, if the numbers are literal, put it around the 1500s. The doubters for this is that Maybe those numbers aren't literal. You know, the Bible is full of non-literal numbers. We just finished Revelation. Like, every number in that is non-literal. You know, whether it's the, the 120, uh, whatever thousand, uh, you know, representing the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, or it's, you know, the, the number seven or the number six, or like, you know, we see that non-literal numbers are everywhere, and we see it in Exodus. We know that 40 isn't meant to be a literal number. It, mean, it represents a generation as the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness uh, because, you know, people lived a little longer than 40 years, so it would take longer than 40 years for everybody in a generation to die out. 40 years represents a generation. That's, that's the, the, the question mark there is maybe these aren't meant to be literal numbers, but just to represent a long period of time. Okay, 
stand on that either way you want. Um, I'm not giving you an answer, by the way, with this. I'm just presenting the arguments. Um, the other day is the 1300s, and the evidence comes from Exodus 1.11, where it talks about the cities that the Israelites are building. And it says they build two cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. The reason that uh, the, it would place this in the 1300s is because the city of Ramses that we know of didn't exist until the 1300s. So it couldn't have been there in the 1500s because it didn't exist. But the Bible says this is the city that they were building. Uh, there's also some question marks there because maybe the original name was lost and a, a later translator or copyist put in the name of the city they thought it was. Um, maybe the name of the city they were working in got renamed. Maybe, you know, there's a, there's a lot of question marks when it comes to names of cities when they're all in ruins, you know, and there's 3,500 years of history and nobody said, yeah, this was it. Like, look, right here it is. Like, no, like, well, there's a lot of question marks. So those are the two big ones. Here's what we know for certain that nobody argues with, mostly, uh, is that in, by 1210 BC, Israel was settled. Israel was was set up in Canaan. We know this because of a thing called the Merneptah Stele. Uh, a stele is essentially like the old school propaganda that, that the ancient kings would put up. The Syrians loved to put up these steles, but the Egyptians did too. And so they'd have this big stone and they would carve in, you know, basically propaganda. When a, when a king would go on campaign, he would put all of his highlights on there for everybody to read and everybody to see, um, you know, basically as, as propaganda to lift up his reign. And so the Pharaoh Merneptah uh, in 1210 went to war with the Libyans to his south. He was an Egyptian pharaoh. Uh, and then it also talks about in the last part of that shtile uh, that he attacked a people called Israel in Canaan and subjugated them. Okay, well, this is really significant for us. We can all agree on this because, well, this is the earliest time outside of the Bible that we see Israel mentioned explicitly. Uh, and it would fit, too, if, with the timing that this is the judges' period, because what did God do during the judges' period? They, people broke their covenant. God would bring in foreign powers to, to correct, the course, correct these people, the people of Israel, and then a, a judge would rise up and lead the people back to freedom. During this time, we know that Israel was under uh, was an imperial client state of, of, of Egypt. So it fits perfectly, right, with, with this timing. They were in the judges' period by 1210 B.C., um, so that, that's kind of where we at are on the day. We know it's between 1500s and 1300s. Okay. Uh, so that brings us to a really, really big thing that we don't, might not have thought of Egypt itself, right? Most of the Exodus story deals with Egypt and to, to kind of homogenize all of Egyptian history would be a critical error to our understanding of it. I mean, this is a civilization that's been around for at least 6,000 years, probably longer. We just don't have any definitive evidence to point to and say, yeah, it was earlier than that. But, but thinking of Egypt that, that Moses dealt with as the same Egypt that Cleopatra lived in, as the same Egypt that Alexander the Great conquered, as the same Egypt that built the pyramids— it's just, it's nonsense. It's, it's like saying modern Italy is the same Italy of Julius Caesar as the same Italy of, as Leonardo da Vinci. Like, they look nothing alike. They, they're, they're the same place, but that's about it. There are some cultural uh, strings that go all the way through that, but they're not the same peoples. They're not the same cultures. They're not the same identities. Same with the, the Egyptians. That the Egypt that Moses dealt with was completely different than... The Moses, or then the Egypt of that we see in the New Testament times, that's the, and then the Egypt that we see the pyramids. I mean, put this 
put this in this scale. Like there's a, a, a lie out there or a mistruth or whatever you want to call it that the, the Israelites were the ones that built the pyramids. That's just emphatically, empirically wrong. Like it's not possible because the pyramids were a thousand years old already by the time Moses shows up. Like nobody, the window, this, this huge like 200 year window that people say it was probably written in, that's a thousand years after the, the great pyramids were built. Like they were built like in, in the 20, they were, they were built so much earlier, a thousand years earlier. I'm really bad at math, so I tried to throw a number out there and I couldn't do it. <laughs> but I mean, just, just think about this, that uh, the, the, the pyramids were the tallest buildings on earth for 3,800 years. It wasn't until 1311 AD that somebody built a, a building taller than that. That's, just, that's not related really to what we're talking about, but just the context of, of, of where we're at in history, like... And just can we just acknowledge the, 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 how incredible that feat is that a, a thousand years before Moses, they had created the, the buildings that would be the tallest structures on earth for 3,800 years. That's just, it's mind-blowing, regardless. Uh, but the, the, just to place ourselves in the context uh, of history, um, the, the pyramids were built during what's called the Old Temple, Old Kingdom period. And in between the old temple period and the new kingdom period, old kingdom period, new kingdom period, uh, there's there a lot of history that happened there. Um, you, we, we had the old kingdom. It fell, and then the Egypt itself kind of splintered and fractured into a bunch of little itty-bitty states. And then uh, one of those states was able to unify the whole place, and that became the middle kingdom. And then the middle kingdom ended, and the, the fra Egypt fractured again into a whole bunch of states. And then one of those states was able to unify it again, and that became the new kingdom. Um, so it's important to understand that, that, that we had different cultures throughout the, this time frame. I mean, even the name itself changed throughout this point, throughout, throughout Egypt's history. Like if we went back in time, we're like, hey, this is Egypt. They'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. The old kingdom called itself Kemet and Deshret. Kemet means black land because the, the, the dirt was so dark around the Nile River. It was the fertile soil. They called themselves Kemet, and then they also called themselves Deshret, which is red land, which, you know, talking about the desert. Um, the name Egypt, we get from what the Greeks called it, Egyptos, which is uh, their failed attempt to, to, to pronounce what the later kingdoms called themselves. They called themselves Hukapta, and I'm sure I'm butchering that. It's hut ak Ta, P-T-A-H. How is that a word? I don't know, but that's what they call it. And that means land of the temple of Ra, the god Ra. That was the home of his temple. So they call themselves land of the temple of Ra. And the Egyptians, the closest, or the Greeks, closest they got was Egyptos, which is where we get Egypt. The, as far as the book of Exodus itself and what the people called it, they called it Mizraim. Totally different word. So just to show that I, I, the point I'm really trying to get here is that we're dealing with a specific point in Egyptian history that doesn't look and act like much of the rest of Egyptian history. Like there's a homogenous line through all of it, but each one's really unique. And, and what we're looking at here with the New Kingdom is a period of, of upheaval and then enormous military and economic power. That's what we're looking at. Because when the Middle Kingdom ended, uh, there was the last pharaoh was Sobokotep. The fourth, don't know how to pronounce that, S-O-B-E-K-H-O-T-E-P, the fourth. He died in 1725 B.C., roughly. When he died, the kingdom split and fractured in a bunch of nation states. Egypt being so powerful during the Middle Kingdom period, it, it attracted people. I mean, it's the same true. Any, any wealthy nation, powerful nation, people flee to it from less wealthy, less powerful nations with the hopes of, 
of, of, of finding a better life. And so towards the end of the Middle Kingdom period, uh, a bunch of people from Canaan, Asiatics they would call them, or as the Egyptians called them, Hyksos, uh, they started settling around the city of Avaris in the Nile Delta. And these, these Canaanites, they became wealthy, they became influential, and when the, the, the nation fractured, they essentially set up their own kingdom until eventually they dominated the northern half of Egypt. It was Hyksos, Egypt, during the Second Intermediate Period. Well, eventually, in the south, uh, there was an ethnic Egyptian civilization called the, based around the city of Thebes, Egyptian Thebes, not Greece Thebes, and eventually, the, the Theban Empire conquered all of it, conquered Hyksos, and they were able to reunify all of Egypt, and that became the New Kingdom. This is a big deal for us. Don't get lost here. The Hyksos were Canaanites that became powerful, ruled part of Egypt, and then a new pharaoh conquered it and did not like these Canaanites. This lines up perfectly with the story of Joseph and the beginning of Exodus. Because we see in the story of Joseph that he rose to power. Well, if it was ethnic Egyptians in power, they probably wouldn't have liked a Canaanite being the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. But if they were Canaanites themselves, oh well, yeah, they, of course. It lines up perfectly with what the Bible says. It's crazy how often that happens. But anyway, so after um, the, these, the, the southern kingdom conquered, the northern kingdom conquered the Hyksos, we see that they, they, they put out a ton of propaganda. All the surviving accounts of this, this, this conflict between the Hyksos and the Thebans, um, it, it, it's all propaganda. Like it's straight up racist propaganda, and it talks about subjugating these 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 Hyksos about how they're a threat to Egyptian power, they're a threat to Egyptians' future, they're they're evil, they need destroyed, they're less than human. Like it's full on all the racist tropes, they're there, and so we see a call to subjugate the Hyksos, and that, I mean it lines up perfectly with what we see in the Bible. So that that's kind of the the historical setting of of what we walk into. The last thing. I want to mention, as far as history goes, is we're dealing with uh, the, the Bronze Age, right? And this was a, a true peak in human civilization. Uh, there were basically five empires at the time that were all kind of world powers. The two big ones were the Hittite Empire in modern-day Turkey, um, which you may have heard of the Hittites in the Bible. Uh, and then Egypt was the, the other major power. But then there was also uh, the, the Kassite Babylonians centered around Kuwait and the city of Babylon in southern Iraq. You had the Middle Assyrians in northern Iraq. Fun fact, when the, when the Bronze Age collapse happened, they were the only ones that survived. Um, all the other empires collapsed. Like the Hittites collapsed so far that we, didn't, we couldn't prove, nobody proved that they were there until the 1800s. Like that's how far. Like the Phrygians that took their land after didn't even know they existed. So just keep that in mind. That's how bad the Bronze Age collapse was. Um, in between the, the Hittites in, in northern and in, in Turkey and the Assyrians over here in northern uh, Iraq, you had the Mitanni. And they're kind of the, the, the question mark because the Hittites and the, uh, the Assyrians basically uh, conquered them about the same time as Moses was doing his thing. So, yeah, those are the big, fire, the, the big powers. There was also the Elamites in southern Iran, which would eventually become the Medes, which would become the Persians. And there was the Azawa in southwest Turkey. Um, why am I telling you all this? Because I want you to see that the world was also a really small place at that time. 
you know, in the Bronze Age collapse, the world got really big. Everybody was isolated. Everybody kind of did their own thing. You didn't really hear about people from faraway lands. You didn't have goods from faraway lands. Technology stayed stagnant. But during the period that Moses was there, there was a lot of trade. There was a lot of uh, economic growth. There was a lot of scientific advancements. There was a lot of, of, of just steps forward in civilization. You know, the, the next times we would see this would be when Greece started doing its thing under Alexander. That, that's the next time we really saw this level of growth and attainment and civilization. So the, the world that Moses and the Israelites were in as, as slaves was one where they were encountering people from all over the world, where they were encountering goods from all over the world. They were being a part of a much bigger uh, system than just isolated slaves down in Egypt. So that's important to understand what we're talking about, that it wasn't just like Moses being who he was would have been aware of the Elamites, would have been aware of the Babylonians, would have been aware of Turkey and Greece and the Mycenaeans and, and, and the Aegean. Like he would have known all of those people, all right? So that gets us to the end of the historical context. The last part is Israel. How did the, how did they get there? Like, why is there a giant slave population there in the first place? Um, and again, as I talked about earlier, I'm assuming you, you have a basic working under knowledge of, of Genesis. But very quickly, Abraham lived in modern-day Kuwait in the city of Ur, essentially, um, southern Iraq. Uh, and God called him to move to the land of Canaan. And he did that. He took his family, took his clan, took uh, all, his, all his stuff with him. And God promised him, I'll give you kids. I'll make you the father of a big nation. But he also said in Genesis 15, 13 that... The, the, your, those, your descendants will, uh, they'll be enslaved for a while, but I'm going to bring them out of slavery and do a mighty thing with them. The whole world will be blessed through you, through your descendants, through the nation that follows from you. And so we see him move to Canaan. He actually goes to Egypt for a little bit, leaves Egypt. He has a son named Isaac. Uh, Isaac marries uh, somebody from his father's people. Okay, so we're still relatively homogenized there. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob marries somebody from his own family, um, from his own clan, basically. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And Jacob's 12 sons start to intermarry with Canaanites. So this is, this is pre-Mosaic law. Moses gets the law at the end of the book of Exodus. Up to this point, everything's kind of loose, right? They're, everything's kind of um, free-flowing, and there's not like strict rules as to who would marry and who not to marry. And so the, these 12 sons, they start to marry local Canaanite women, and we start to see a mix-mash of people who were from the other side of the Levant over in southern Iraq, to now they're starting to look and sound and act more Canaanite. Um, and so eventually through the story, if you know Genesis, you know that Joseph gets sold in slavery, rises to power, presumably in Hyksos, Egypt. His family moves there, and a lot of Canaanites move there, and the family grows, and they have kids, and they have grandkids, and it just it explodes in, in population. But the other thing that we don't really talk about very often is that eventually when they become slaves, it, they don't just stay strictly within the descendants of Abraham, right? Those laws that you only had to marry Israelites, it didn't exist yet. And the slave population, how did Egypt get more slaves? Well, you, you had military campaigns, and who did they campaign against? They campaigned against the Hittites, against the Mycenaeans. They campaigned against all their neighbors. And so really, if you want to have an accurate picture of who the slaves of, of Israel were, who the people of Israel were, you have to be very multicultural. You had people from all over the ancient Near East living and, and, and being slaves together. What made them the sons of Abraham was that they organized along the 12 sons of Jacob, of Israel. 
That was the structure they found themselves in. That became the dominant force, and that's because God was building a nation through them, right? I don't think this was an accident. I don't think it was just, oh, we'll go with this family. Like, no, God was building a nation through them, and he was working amongst the people. But it wasn't a homogenous, strictly descendants of him. I don't, I don't believe that. I think it was this, this uh, multicultural group that were, were homogenizing around Israel and around the worship of Yahweh. Um, they were, they were, had a common enemy. They had a common obstacle in their enslavement. And then God worked and did a mighty thing for this people. And that gets us to where the book of Exodus starts, where our story picks up. We see a nation of slaves that is united together in their hatred of their slavery and, and in their worship of Yahweh and in the, their organization as the uh, tribes of Israel. We see a powerful nation that really is unopposed except for the Hittites. We see a, 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 a system that leads people to trade with other people where we'd see goods and cultures and knowledge shared all across the world. We see this factoring into everything stacked against the Israelites, and yet somehow God acts on their behalf and they are set free. They overcome the most powerful nation on the planet at that time and establish themselves as a new nation. If you have any questions, reach out. Hopefully this was uh, informative and exciting and, and it'll be something you can reference back to as we go through this study of the story of the Exodus. If you have any questions, comments, reach out. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.